And like, I think it can seem very frustrating, especially if you're trying to break in to an industry and you're saying, but what I'm writing is like nothing else that's out there. And you think like readers will want something that's very different. But publishing is an industry and it is a risk averse industry and they do not want to hear it is unlike anything else out there. Yeah. Say that what they hear is we have no idea if this will sell. They want to hear that it is quite like two something or three else that have sold very well, but also its own thing and your fresh new voice, which mm. is, it sounds paradoxical and it sounds annoying, but if you are going through traditional publishing, mm. that's what they want. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Rights for Women. I'm actually just back from a fabulous little tour around the central west of New South Wales, where Penelope Janu and I tripped around a few little bookshops and libraries and taught a couple of workshops. But the main main reason that we were there was to promote our A Country Bit Christmas anthology, which we have put out in conjunction with Alyssa Callan, Lily Malone and Stella Quinn by HQ, who were our publisher. And uh, it was really great to just get out there and meet readers, sell a few books, which is always fabulous, and to teach a writing workshop in both Forbes and Orange. We also visited the occasional wine bar and bibliotheque in Borowa, and Jeremy there organised a couple of vets to interview us. So that was something different, and Lizzie and Georgie were both really lovely, and we had a great time there. So well, we were away for five days and it was a really fun time and a really good experience for both Penny and I. So a Country Vet Christmas anthology is out now and available in ebook and print. The bad news is you may find it hard to get at the moment because the good news is it's actually pretty much sold out and even better news is that HQ are doing another print run. So if you have tried to get a Country Vet Christmas in any of the stores, direct department stores, Kmart, Target, Big W or any bookshops and you haven't been able to get it, do try again. Do persevere because they will be getting new stock in very soon. In time for Christmas. It's a great gift, of course, for yourself, for you to read, but it would also be a great gift to give to anybody who loved reading, particularly if they love Australian stories, rural romance, stories with romantic elements and just fabulously gorgeous people in the country and vets and Christmas. On to this week's episode. This week's episode is an interview between Jo Riccioni, who has her second book in her duology out, The Rising. It's the second book in the branded series. And I haven't yet read The, the Rising, but I can't wait because I absolutely love The Branded. And Joe has interviewed Freya Marks, and this is a really great interview. Now, when I was at the RWA conference just a couple of months ago, the hot genre that publishers there were talking about was romanticy. So Freya is a romanticy author, and she has written a trilogy 
And Joe talks about the trilogy in the interview when she introduces Freya. And Freya is a fantastic interviewee because she is so clear and so succinct about exactly what she was writing. It is a mashup. It's romanticy, fantasy, and historical. But she is 100% clear on how all those elements work together, what she was doing in writing it, and how both those kind of genres serve the story and serve the character. And uh, it's a really good interview to listen to. Even if you don't write romance, even if you don't write fantasy, uh, she is obviously a very skilled author and all over her technique and her craft. So it's a really great chat between Joe and Freya. So grab yourself a cuppa or a drink or head off for your walk as you listen to this really fabulous interview between guest host Joe Riccioni and Freya Marks. Freya, welcome to the Rise for Women podcast. I'm so excited to have you on board. Freya, I met you at Supernova, so I'm like, we've had chats and we've got to know each other a little bit, but I actually read your book before I met you at Supernova, so I was already a massive fan, so I already knew in the back of my mind I desperately wanted you to come on Rights for Women, and um, then I read your second book, which I've just finished, And uh, but let me just give a bit of an introduction. Freya, you are the author of what is described as queer historical fantasy series called The Last Binding. Set in Edwardian England, which is full of magic, contract, and conspiracies. Mother's Light came out in October 21 and was an international bestseller and won the Romantic Novel Award for Fantasy. So well done for that. That's amazing. And then A Restless Truth came out in November, so a full year later. And another full year later, you're just about to release A Power Unbound, which is going to be published on the 14th of November this year. Is that the completed trilogy now for that series, Freya? Yes, that's it. So the plan was always that it was going to be three books published a year apart. And I'm very thankful we've managed to keep the schedule. That's good. We'll talk about schedules and deadlines and the some of the pressures that come with writing a series. I do want to talk quite a bit about writing a series because that's what I pitched the episode as. We'll talk about lots of other things because I just love the books anyway and I want to talk to you about it. Tell us first of all about what your not necessarily the pitch for the books, but the unique selling point of your world, because I think it is quite unique. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, the magic world and the system that you've created? Yeah, so this is a very clearly historical fantasy. And we'll probably talk about this more as we talk about writing series, but I always knew that this one was going to be historical fantasy because in my head it was a trilogy of neat historical romances. Uh, and then I knew I wanted to have a magical fantasy plot that was through all three books. Uh, so structurally, it's both a fantasy trilogy and it's a historical romance series. And when I was coming up with the world, part of it was choosing the time setting for it because parts of it could have taken place at many different parts in the history of England. I knew I, I wanted to write it set in England but I had to make a decision as to exactly where I was going to set it. Uh, and that obviously had then an influence on how I wrote the later book once I made that decision for book one. Mm. And I knew I wanted to write a hidden magical world, so not a historical fantasy where everyone knows about magic, it's practiced out in the open, but something that as far as the protagonist in the first book is concerned, he is living in a normal historical novel. And then he discovers in the first chapter that it's actually it's living in a historic fantasy novel because he discovers the existence of magic, which made some of the research 
on one hand, it was quite easy because all of the trappings of it are the trappings of historical fiction. But then I was inventing this whole other magical world existing underneath. And what were the rules of that? And in what ways were the society the same as the society of unmagical people in this world? And the conceit that I came up with for how magic is practiced in Britain at this time is a thing called cradling, which is based on cat cradles, mm. string activity, uh, which I was obsessed with for, I think, for a very intense summer in my youth. Uh, I remember we had a book of like string tricks and it showed you how to do cat's cradles with another person. And I think my poor younger brother probably got sick of that after the first day. But the rest of the book were string tricks you could do on your own. So how to, once you had the string, you could create this bridge or this tower or this magic carpet. And I loved that. So I got very obsessed with learning how to do all of those. And some time ago when I was writing a short story, I came up with the idea of a gesture-based magic that was very precise. And the way it was precise was it was a sort of mimicking the precise moments you would have to make with your fingers to create a cat's cradle. And so I used the verb cradling for magic without really explaining it. I just threw into this story and thought the nice idea, but the story wasn't really about that. But then it stuck in my head as an interesting idea. And when it came time to build the magic system for A Marvelous Light, I thought, what if that's how you learn the magic? Gestures relate to this string-based pattern, but you, that's how you learn it as a child or that's how you keep your magic very precise. And that was what led to the creation of Edwin and the character of, okay, if you were a magician in this world who didn't actually have a lot of magical power, you're not a chosen one, you're not even particularly mm. powerful, everyone else in your family has more magic than you, but you're looked down upon for that reason. What if the way that you made your magic work, if you didn't have much of it, was be stuck with the string? And so that was how I came up with this idea of Edwin as somebody who still uses a string to do magic. Uh, yeah. And he's this frustrated genius in a way because he has a very creative analytical mind when it comes to the use of magic and he's had to develop that because he doesn't have much power uh, and so you have this image i have this image of him using the string and everybody else around him looking down on him because that's children and underpowered people yeah and so that was really fun because it did allow me to build these inequalities and social assumptions into the magic system from day one which was really fun yeah, no, it's really, I, I love the I love Edwin's character as well, because of course he relies on books and, and his knowledge. He's an incredibly intelligent character as well. And then he's a nice counterplay to, to, to Robin, who is the more adventurous, Dolly Holly sticks, talkie sticks. Um, oh, yeah, it was, uh, Edwin is my kind of character. And you know, I think a lot of people who write are also more bookish people. And so yeah. I write a lot of characters like Edwin who are very intelligent, bookish, and maybe what a weird kid at school. And so writing Robin as my point of view character was a bit of an exercise in forcing myself to write the kind of character that I always enjoy when I come across him, but I'd never done a lot of writing of before. Mm. Really analytical. He's quite credulous. He gets magic who instead of asking questions and doubting and going, no, there must be some other explanation here. So that was clearly magic. Great, let's move on. And this is great. Tell me more. That kind of someone who's not unintelligent, but has never valued or been valued for intelligence and doesn't really get any enjoyment out of being analytical. It was mm. a very obvious foil to put him up against this sort of librarian bookish character, especially when I knew I was building a romance. Yeah. So a good contrast to yeah, build a romance really on because they would assume 
the worst of each other because they remind yeah. one another of people they've disliked in the past. Yeah, because they're not exactly enemies to lovers, but they are prickly, aren't they? They, they start off on a prickly kind of Yeah, thing. I describe it as enmity. Enmity. <laughs> enmity, yeah. They get up on the wrong foot and then things happen in the first half of the book that produce further royalty. But of course, you have to have them also linked together by this shared quest and the shared need to find things out. And that's how you get them to draw together and recognize one another's good qualities across the book. Yeah. And then, of course, when you've come across the romance, it's all the sweeter because of the, the, the differences and the, the kind of friction they've had between each other. Um, now, there's a lot going on in your books, in both of them. So let's just explain to readers um, and listeners that um, your second book in the series doesn't follow Edwin and Robin, but it follows Robin's sister. Had you all always planned that it was going to be a kind of series that stays in the world? You have the overarching plot of the magic system and the quest for this ultimate the ultimate quest of the... Uh, the a bit of a magical MacGuffin, we can call it. Uh, yeah. And the baddies who want to rule the world with magic and then the, the, your protagonists who are trying to stop them. So you've got that overarching plot through the three books, but you, did you always know you were going to go with different characters? Yes, I did. And I knew that was a risk in fantasy because it is much more usual for a fantasy series to follow, if not the same character, the same group of characters. And some fantasy series might expand the core group of characters until you end up with George R. Martin levels of, of core cast, but you don't tend to drop points of view. But because I was sneakily also writing a romance series, I knew in the first book we would have this core romance and they would reach a happily for now, yes, we're in love, we're going to, we're agreeing to be together by the end of the first book. Uh, but we would also have met one of the protagonists of the second book. And I knew when I very first conceptualized the series, book two had a different set of main characters because it was almost, it was an idea I had that was almost a standalone, the idea of a, a murder mystery on an ocean liner that was also a ghost story. But then I looked at the series and went, actually, this is perfect. I can, that can be book two. And all I had to do was change one of the two main characters to be Maud, Robin's sister. So, so was book one always going to be um, a series or was it going to be a standalone? In my head, it was always a series. It had to stand alone as a book to a certain extent. So I knew the romance would stand alone, but I also knew that I was pitching a trilogy in terms of the, the fantasy plot. And we were quite lucky that we did actually get a contract for a full trilogy. So I could publish book one knowing I was going to be able to write books two and three. And so I didn't have to suddenly swerve and wrap up the plot in book two. I didn't even get turned into a duology. It was always going to be a trilogy, which was really good. The fact that there are different narrators for each one was definitely a, a risk for fantasy because people are much more used to fantasy following either the same narrative characters or the same characters and then adding more and more as you move through a series. It's quite rare, I think, to completely abandon the point of view characters that people have that you've introduced. You put all this work into making people fall in love with them. And then you move on to someone new. Uh, but for me, because I always knew I was writing a romance series, this is exactly what happens, especially in historical romance. But anybody who reads a romance series is quite familiar with, you read book one and along on the page comes someone who smells like sequel bait. And oh, that's right. Also, a best friend or it's a family member. 
And so I knew when I was writing a marvelous light, book one had to include one of the protagonists of book two. And that turned out to be Maud. And so then I built the love interest for book two around what would be a good love interest for Maud while also serving the higher plot. Book three, a, re- a power unbound, I always knew was going to be Lord Hawthorne's book. And if you are at all familiar with historical romance, then if you have an asshole aristocrat yeah. with a hint of secret pain in his past, if he appears on the page, there is almost certainly going to be a book about him. So anybody with romance instincts who read The Marvelous Light goes, tell me more about Lord Hawthorne. Yes. And that's I, exactly I, what I like saying. him. I know he I know he's a complete dickhead when he's on page, but I like him. And yeah, that's yeah. makes sense if you know that character archetype. And so I then had to put him on page quite more in book two. Because when you meet him in book one, he's not in a place where he's ready for his love story. No, he's actually got quite a bad rap in book one. Oh, some, yeah, he's horrible. Like, he's he, horrible. He, he really does a really nasty thing to Edwin. And yeah. In book one. And you're so much on Edwin's side in book one that you can walk away from a marvelous light going, well, he seems intriguing, but oh, and I hate him. And so I have to drag him unwillingly towards both the plot and being involved in the plot and being in a place where he is ready for his own love story. And so I changed my mind a little bit about who his love love interest was going to be. And then I realized once I knew who his love interest was going to be, they had to also appear in book two because I didn't have space in book three to go through the full effort of introducing someone who didn't know what was going on. Because I can, in book two, A Marvelous Light, it's very introductory. Edwin knows magic. Robin doesn't. We have this point of view character introducing us to the world and we get the ball rolling on the major plot. By the time we hit book two, Maud knows about magic. She knows about the plot. Violet, her love interest, knows about magic and just has to be introduced to the plot. Hawthorne already knows what's going on and he just has to be enmeshed. Yeah. In the story. And so by the time you hit book three, you've met both of the protagonists of book three. I've done the first couple of romance beats. So the meet cute and the initial enemies stage has already happened. And you don't see the inside of their heads. You don't know what they think about it, but we've seen the potential that these characters had. So by the time we get to book three, A Power Unbound, you know these characters both know what's happening with the plot and they know each other. And that was what I needed to get, be able to hit the ground running in book three, because I was also returning to Edwin and Robin and drawing in Maud and Violet from book two and returning to some of the other supporting characters. So book three is very much, you have to have read books one and two because we've got, we're an ensemble cast. Yeah. Doing a leverage style heist and really everything takes off in terms of the plot momentum. And I'm featuring all of your favorite characters from the first two books and I'm doing the romance yeah. between Hawthorne and Ross. So it's a busy book. It's a bit longer than the others. And pulling off that balancing act was a challenge for me. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about that a little bit because I am interested in you talk, the way you talk about it and the structure and what you're doing. You're like a magician in your, in your own right as a writer because you are, and it's the first series you've done, right? So once you knew you'd signed for three books and you didn't have to end that first book, you could keep it open and go back to the world. Were you plotting it all out from the beginning or how do you work? To an extent, like I will be absolutely honest, the magical plot in it is not the most complicated magical plot in the world. 
there, there's some magical MacGuffins. We're trying to get hold of them. The other guys are trying to get hold of them. Whoever gets hold of them has potential to use magic power for evil or for their own games. Mm. So yeah, nothing hugely complicated. And I knew that I didn't want to be doing a very complicated plot at the same time as trying to do these romances. But the nature of the plot and the way it thematically played out changed as I was writing the second book, I think. I think I had to finish the second book with a very clear idea of what was going to happen in book three because I had to make sure I had laid out all the pieces that I would need. So at the end of book, writing book one, I had a vague idea of where like I knew where we would end book two, but I wasn't quite sure how I would get us there. And then I made a decision during the writing of book two about how I was going to play with narration in book three, which was a little bit of a risk. And I'm really interested to see reader feedback as to how it pays off. Okay. The people who read it so far say I didn't say that it worked, which was it was good. But there are things that have surprised me about you reach a certain point of adding in details, even though I am a very structural plotter at the beginning when I don't start writing a book until I have a scene-by-scene outline. Okay, things happen within the writing of a scene that can surprise you and make you take a step back and go, okay, that could actually change how I write the next book or how I write the second half of this book because I've given myself some new pieces to play with. Mm. And book three is very much when I sat down to plan it in great detail. I looked back at book one and book two and all of the magic world building that I'd done, a lot of which was quite incidental. So the magic world building I decided I was just going to do on the fly as I went. That's what makes it so good, though, because it's not overwhelming. It's like it doesn't get in the way of the characters. And that's you are a character writer. You are a, you're a, character, yeah. a dialogue writer, an intricate scene setter, which is beautiful. So, yeah, I think that you did that really well with the magic. But, yeah, carry on. So you... Yeah, like I, because most of that happened accidentally. I then, when I got to the point in book three, which was just like foil bad guys here, I had to say, okay, what tools have I given myself in the writing of book one and the writing of book two? And I looked back at some characters that I'd introduced and some concepts that had been throwaway, or even like there was a line in book one that was just a throwaway line when I wrote it. And then when I was planning book three, I was rereading book one and went, I have accidentally set up a Chekhov's gun here. Yeah. Of something that was just a figure of speech. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I actually made that happen in book three? And that became my midpoint event. I'm so glad you said that because I thought, because I've just finished book two, mine's a duology and it's completed now. But I thought you were such an amateur, Joe. You were just picking out these things that you've laid as possible, like you say, Chekhov's guns, possible little things that you might develop later on. But it's actually now hinging the entire plot of the Yeah, exactly. And I think for me that's the fun of the balance of planning and panting is that I plan the structure of the book, but I I got to a point where I was quite comfortable saying, okay, in this scene what happens is they follow the bad guys or they manage to get their hands on this, but I don't know how yet. But how they do it doesn't quite matter. What matters is where they start the scene and where they end the scene. What what do what's the status quo heading into the climax of the book? And as long as I know what those major points are, I can then improvise quite a lot in how the characters get from one of those points to the other. And that's where I did a lot of looking back at the magic and the world building and the characters and saying, who can I use here? Mm -hmm. And so it makes it look very deliberate, even though what you've done is 
essentially just give you a, create a whole lot of tools and bells and whistles and fun things and then turn around and go, which of these do I need? Yeah. Create the thing that I'm doing here. And because none of them were like actual smoking guns, none of them were like, here is a very clear plot thread. It was just, okay, here's something fun that I just came up with off, off the cuff. What if I took that to its most extreme conclusion? Or what if I introduced this person and then told you something different about them? So yeah, and I think I think that is the skill in it because if it is a smoking gun, you got to use it, right? That's that's the role of Chekhov's gun. But these are more like little things that could just be thematic or could become major. Yeah, one of the things I want to talk to because I think it will really interest listeners is when you so when you're approaching publishers, say I know there's a lot of people out there who would like to write a series, but they know that publishers and agents are going to say, and this happened to me, they're going to say, I can't sell a series book at the moment. I need it to be a standalone. But the way you described it earlier was with potential to revisit the world. Do you think that still stands? Or once you've written your trilogy and got signed for it, then that's okay. You can continue writing series or I have I have no idea about the current state of acquisitions in terms <laughs> of series versus standalones. Uh because the next few things that I'm selling are standalones, I'm not sure yet. Okay. We I think I was quite lucky that my agent that managed to sell a book with a very clear, this is the start of a three book series. And I think it was because it was quite obvious that it was actually a romance trilogy. Uh, yeah. And then if book one didn't do very well, they could have just bought book one and said, okay, yeah. you know, we'll get the others if we want to. But my editor managed to acquire three books. So yeah. say, yeah, we're buying this as a trilogy. And I, that was, on one hand, quite like at the end, everybody would, would get that. It would just depend on the niche you were filling, the editor who's acquiring, what else was on that um, publishing house's plate in the next few years that like they had to guarantee a slot yeah. three years in a row. Yeah, um, that's hard for them, isn't it, as well? Yeah, so, they, 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 might, they don't necessarily know what else is on. You, know, you don't know what else is on a publishing house's slate when they acquire you. And some imprints acquire very far in advance. Mm-hmm. And, and then the timing was another thing. They were saying, okay, we're going to buy this trilogy, but you are committing to delivering the next two books with these deadlines. Yes. And as a debut author, without a great deal of existing clout, there's a lot of pressure to meet those deadlines. If I had not met them, if I had been the kind of fantasy author who writes the first two books and then just disappears and never writes the third, it would be very unlikely that I would get any further contracts but because i met my deadlines and have produced them i think now on the one hand it probably is easier for me to sell a series number one because i have an existing readership but number two because my publishing house and my editor know that i can write a book a year yeah which is a big deal and it's genre fiction has this big expectation of how fast you can write and how many books you can write in a year fantasy it seems if you can write a book a year, people will be happy with that. Romance seems ridiculous, especially self-published romance. There's people writing three or four or five books a year and more power to them. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. Um, I just look at literary fiction and someone like Donna Tartt writes one book every 10 years. And everyone's like, oh, yes. I mean, of course it takes that long to write a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am fantasy just frantically throwing dragons onto the page and hoping <laughs> finish a draft. That's the track that from your books, though, because they are more like towards the literary side of 
Uh, they're beautifully written. You've got an amazing eye for imagery and turn of phrase and dialogue. And yeah, I think it can, there can be some assumptions there that just because fantasy or romance writers are throwing these books out once a year, that they're badly written. They, they're not. A lot of them are not. I just came from the Romance Writers of Australia conference uh, a few weeks ago, and they were talking about burnout in, in the industry because of the pressure of writing these series. And that's among self-published and traditionally published authors. You've obviously, did you, did, did pressure get to you on the three books or just because we do have a lot of listeners who are writers, how do you, how did you handle that? Did you just make sure you were doing like nine to five days or wherever you can? <laughs> nine to five days. I have two other jobs. So I was yeah. definitely referring nine to five days. By the time I sat down to write book two, which was the first one I was writing on contract to a deadline. By that stage, I had already written three novels. So there was a novel that I wrote that got me my, my first ever novel, which got me my agent but didn't sell. Mm. And then there was A Marvelous Light was the second book I'd written. And I'd written a romance novel as well in between writing and all the other ones. And so by that stage, I knew I could finish a novel, which made a big difference. And yeah. I also knew approximate, I knew that every book I'd written so far had taken me less than a year to write. That's good. Yeah, so about nine months for a fantasy novel, maybe six for a romance. And so I thought, okay, I know what my pace is. I know what's sustainable for me. I can agree to meet this deadline. Mm. And that was, and then the pandemic happened. And I was very lucky in that I did not have a particularly, I didn't have the world come crashing down on me in a, in a way that made me unproductive. So my, because I work in healthcare, I still had a job. I wasn't suddenly having to homeschool children. It was just me and I was stuck at home a lot more than usual. And so I actually got book two written a little bit faster than I expected because I suddenly didn't have quite as much to do outside the house. And it was a book about seeking adventure and traveling and somebody who has always wanted a life and adventure larger than what she's had before. And so writing it felt like wish fulfillment. In a way, I wanted to write something cheerful and escapist, a romp, an adventure yeah. that involved travel. And so it was probably the best book that I could have been writing over that pan the first pandemic year. And then in the second year of the pandemic, I did have a bit of a crash and couldn't write for about four or five months. And so I got quite worried about book three. Uh, I, of course, I ended up finishing it a little bit over time. Like I had to get a little bit of an extension, but again, it was a longer book so it did take me a little bit longer i'm lucky in that i write quite clean first drafts i and i submitted synopses like rough synopses of the books to my editor before i started writing to say look this is the shape of the book what do you think and i got her blessing before i actually started and then once i start writing i actually yeah i'm a pretty clean drafter i didn't have to do any major structural edits on book two or book three that's book helped. Three, yeah, that helped a lot. Book three and book two involved a little bit of rewriting of the early chapters, especially just to shift the tone a bit. But book three, even though it felt like a much harder draft to write because I was juggling so many characters and so many events and things, it actually came out very close to the finished product. So the fact that I didn't have to do many rounds of structural editing on it, it was really just rounds of mm. changing a few things. The, the chapters and the events in the chapters stayed more or less the same. Uh, that helps yes, a lot. Super. It's, it's been, yeah. I've been able to keep to the deadlines that I've been set. 
Yeah. And do you feel, do you feel a sense of grief now that trilogy is completed or do you feel like you, I've got shiny new idea and I just can't wait to get on with it? Oh, there, I'm, I'm shifting at the moment. When you're writing something, you're very much in the, I wish I was writing the shiny new thing. I feel, I feel a bit bittersweet, the fact that I was with those characters for a long time and I felt very comfortable in the world by the end of it. Writing book three, even though it was a challenging book in terms of fitting everything in, by the time I hit it, I knew those characters so well. Like I knew the point of view characters well. I knew the supporting characters well. I knew the world. I knew the magic. I did a bit more research, but it was just research that was adding to my existing knowledge about that time period. So it didn't feel, it felt like I was finally walking downhill rather than walking uphill. Yeah. Now that I'm in the stage of writing something entirely new, it still it feels very uphill. <laughs> very uphill yeah. indeed. What's the right. sense of ease and familiarity? Yeah, of writing a series was one of the things I was going to ask you about. Was there is a certain comfort, isn't there, in knowing that you're doing three books? You can, at the end of it, you're looking at that body of work and you're going. I, I felt comforted in the fact that I know where I was going with each book. I knew my characters, I knew my world, I knew my magic mm-hmm. system. So there is that. Sometimes you get to the desk though, and I'm sure you go. I'm just <laughs> a little bit over this once long. I mean, speaking of pressure, it was so much, for book two, there was this sense of, oh, I wrote, as I was writing it, the book one hadn't quite come out yet, but as it started to, as it was coming out, I was seeing all this love that was coming out for the characters of Robin and Edward, and I thought, God, I'm just, sorry, everyone, I'm just about to take you on a completely different adventure with people you haven't met, and and they're not really going to appear very much, and I had to keep saying, please hold on, they're going to be in book three, I promise. But at the same time, I knew that everybody who was, most people who were picking up book two had enjoyed book one. And by the time we got to book three, anybody who's still with you by book three of a series, you've got that buy-in. You know, you have to work less hard to sell a reader that you know what you're doing and all the characters. So I think part of the pressure that I'm feeling now writing my first post-series is that, yes, I have a certain level of trust from my readership, but I have to sell them on the fact that I'm going to introduce them to some brand new people and a new world and a new sort of book and veering away from the structure of something that has done well is a little bit scary. Yeah, but that's why I think you're a character writer because you've managed to do it. You did it again in book two and I'm sure you're going to introduce us to new characters, but they're just as good. And I'm sure you're going to do it again in book three. But what I want to talk to you a little bit about with the series is, and your just opinion in general on writing, is the fact that your books are what I would consider genre mash. And I love that. I remember reading C.L. Polk's Midnight Bargain. I don't know whether you've read that. And that was one of my first introductions to romance with magic and a kind of feminist theme going through it as well. And I want you to speak to me a little bit about how you approach your ideas of, is that a conscious thing you do or is it just, I want to, I like these books and I'm going to write these books in one book. Pretty much the latter. Yeah. Yeah. I basically, I write books that I want to read and that's the way I've approached it from the very first book that I ever wrote. And it turns out that what I want to read is books that usually have some kind of speculative element, not always, but usually usually have some kind of romance and if there is a romance has a lot of sex scenes in it and yeah. so I was like, this is what I want to write and then as it goes on I'm my and my style as you pointed out is quite literary 
for both romance and fantasy, but I can't change that. That's my voice. So you're just going to get the story that I want to write and it's going to be in my voice. And then I discovered through writing the trilogy that I quite liked not very structured murder mysteries, like I'm not writing classic procedurals or classic golden age detective novels, but I quite like the central hook of a murder mystery or a mystery to pull you through a book. So if you look at something like A Restless Truth, it is a murder mystery. It's, and it's got that, those little genre nods to detective fiction. It is a romance and it's a high heat romance. It's a fantasy book and it's the second book in a fantasy trilogy. The writing is quite literary and it's a historical novel set on a very specific time and place. But I had to decide where in the bookshop it was going to go and it was going to go on the fantasy shelf. Yeah. That's really what you have, to, I think, from a very commercial perspective when we were shopping book one and failing because it was a very similar kind of genre mesh. My agent sat me down and just said, look, I like this idea you have for this series, but you have to decide if it's a romance series or a fantasy series. And I said, I want to be a fantasy writer, so it's going to be a fantasy series. And so that did influence how I wrote, how I conceptualized one. Yeah. It's interesting though, isn't it? And I'm, I'm really fascinated with this because sometimes I feel that readers don't have that distinction that publishers and agents do actually put up the barriers of where, and, and it comes down to the bookshop, where is it going to be shelved? But nowadays with so much promotion being online and not actually at the bookshop level, it's they're finding out about the book before they go into the bookshop. Does it really matter? And is that gatekeeping a little bit over officious in a way? Because if you're into a fan fiction or any of our own, all of that is genre match and a lot of it anyway. And I'm just wondering, I know we have to decide, we have to market ourselves and brand ourselves, but it's something that I get very frustrated with. In yeah, I, I think it can seem very frustrating, especially if you're trying to break in to an industry and you're saying, but what I'm writing is like nothing else that's out there. And you think like readers will want something that's very different. But publishing is an industry and it is a risk-averse industry and they do not want to hear it is unlike anything else out there. Yeah. Because when you say that, what they hear is, we have no idea if this will sell. They want to hear that it is quite like two something or three else that have sold very well, but also its own thing and your fresh new voice, which mm. is, it sounds paradoxical and it sounds annoying, but if you are going through traditional publishing, Mm. That's what they want. And I think the industry and the face of genre especially has changed in the last five years since I saw the first book. Literally. And there are some extremely big success stories that have come up through indie. And there have been a lot of people who have been self-published. And then traditional publishing has turned around and gone, oh, you seem to be doing quite well. Would you like us to repackage your book and sell it on to a wider market? And the good thing about that is that it has been a slightly organic way for markets to be proven. So, for example, Legends and Lattes yes. by Waldry was self-published, did very well, and has now been republished, and now it is a comp title for heaps of things because before it did very well, it wasn't obvious to publishing that there was a market for low fantasy or rather very low stakes fantasy. Cozy fantasy. Yeah, it was cozy fantasy. And now you you can't move without hitting cozy fantasy because it's a a big current thing. And But it didn't really, obviously it existed, but it was blown open as a market niche by a self-published novel 
that then did well enough that publishing was prepared to say, oh, now it's like this thing that has a proven track record. And so I think you can't chase trends in publishing. Like you really, you can't predict, you know, if you sit down today and say, I'm going to write a book that's like this thing that's big now, it will take you a year to write the book. It might, who knows how long it will take you to sell it on submission. And then it will be two years later by the time it actually hits the shelves. So unless you are working in a very fast paced play production area of self-publishing, which some people are, some people can really Mm. run erotica or romance or certain types of self-published sci-fi fantasy really can turn on a dime as far as trends go and be quite productive and make a lot of money that way. Traditional publishing, you can't. You just have to write what you want to write and then either you'll hit the right point in the market cycle or you'll find an editor whose vision aligns with yours who thinks, yes, I want to be behind this. I want to produce this as well. And things change. Like there, like my first novel, it didn't sell. Yeah, we just put it in a drawer. Things are changing. I think market the market is different. The conception of these genre mesh sections is also different. So it's very hard to tell. I have no hard and fast advice for anybody who's trying to write a marketable or sellable to public to to the traditional fantasy genre at the moment because who knows what it's going to look like in three years' time. Yeah, just, the only way you get through is by loving the idea you have and the characters you have. That's the only thing that will sustain you through the process of writing, querying, being on submission, and then all the ups and downs and angst of Ava even being published. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, and you're absolutely right when, it get, when you're saying about it has to be marketed and it has to be put into a, a position with comp titles and all the rest of it. Within that, you still have this ability to, I think, storytelling generally and and series are branching out into so many other areas. If you look at a series like Deadlock, I don't know whether you've been watching Deadlock. It's a right. I'm obsessed with Deadlock. It's fantastic. So it's, it's true. It, it defines genre. I've been trying to sell it to people. They're like, what is it like? I'm like, okay, you know all of those small town dark crime dramas? It's still that, but it's actually a satire. But actually, it is doing that also. Yeah. Um, it's also the most lesbian thing I've ever seen, and it's really funny. Meaning. <laughs> Hang on, what genre is this show? I'm like, yes. Yeah. Please <laughs> procedural. It's please procedural, but also many other things. No, it's a great example, actually. Yeah, it, it really does defy categorization. And I think that's why it's people who love it. Love it. Yeah, exactly. And in the Romance Writers of Australia conference, we're talking about how romance, romance is having a moment with fourth wing and we obviously we all already know that sex scenes within romance, sex scenes within fantasy have always been there. Do you think readers are wanting that a bit more in their books? I know some readers don't. Some readers are really anti that and they're closed door romance, as they say, as they call it. Open doors, a bit more spicy, if not downright erotic scenes within books. I was actually asked by my publisher to put a bit more in. Okay. I uh, was already quite spicy. Well, oh, that's hard. I think everybody has, you're right, everybody has a level of comfort with what they want to read and everyone has a level of comfort with what they want to write as well. <laughs> I don't obviously my level of comfort is very high for both things. Not, that's not for everybody. I don't think any, not every book needs to have a succeed. I love your website because it actually says, from the first, then said time, writing stories plus magic blood and as much kissing as I can get away with. Yeah, and you can get away with different amounts depending on where you are. It's probably one of the reasons why I'm probably never going to be a, a young adult writer mm. because the amount of spice that you can get away with in YA is much smaller. But 
I always find it really hard to answer questions like, what do you think readers want? Because I have no idea. The, the reader out there, for me, obviously the ideal reader of my books is somebody who wants to read the kind of books that I want to read. And so I think there are a lot of people out there who were not expecting this level of heat in a fantasy fantasy book and picked it up and, and hit the sex scenes and were like, okay, this is not what I was expecting. And for some people that's a deal breaker and they'll put it down and go, okay, this isn't what I was expecting and it's not for me. I've had some absolutely lovely reader emails from people who were not expecting it, but were surprised by like how much they enjoyed it or they are really at, liked what it added to the characters. And yeah, I think there is more accept when you talk about romantic, I think it was the collision of two forces and it was fantasy having more tolerance for sex scenes in it and then uh, fantasy romance surging up from being a huge indie thing, becoming much more mainstream, and they just met mm. in the, and became romanticy, which, again, like I think you can talk to five different people and nobody will agree whether romanticy lives on the fantasy shelf or the romance <laughs> shelf. Yeah. Um, you're just calling it romanticy, but there's still no romanticy book shelf in your brick-and-mortar store. But it is having a, a definite moment, and I don't know to what extent this is something that's just going to yeah. have a really strong phase and everyone's going to back off a little bit and everyone's going to retreat back to their romance section or their fantasy section. But I think it's just reflective of the fact that there's always been a desire to see strong character and romantic plots in fantasy. And there's always been a, a strong market for speculative elements in romance. And now we're just seeing, yeah, both of those meeting and becoming something that a lot of people are very interested in. So I haven't yet been told to put more sex in a book, <laughs> but I haven't yet been told to take any out either. Already at the moment, I had to break it to my agent that I didn't think I could fit a sex scene in. There's just too much other stuff going on. And she was like, oh, come on. I think you can. I don't know. Because it's not a, this one isn't a romance. This one's structured quite differently. Okay. Uh, so maybe I'll just have to write the sex scenes as um, little extras that I send to my mailing list. Yes, definitely. What, what I was going to ask you was, this is standalone, the new book that you're working on at the moment, Ryan. Yes. And is there, was there a reason you wanted to go into standalone and not do series again? It was just the, the nature of the idea. Like yeah. A very standalone idea. I'm looking at it now. I'm like, oh, I, mean, I suppose I could turn it into a series, but I, again, it would, take, it would be a very odd shape of a series. Like it's a very standalone story. And it's still magical or sci-fi elements or fashion? Um, yes, this one is a secondary world fantasy. Okay. And what do you mean from listeners who don't know what Secondary World is? What I mean? So Secondary World, so A Marvelous Light and that whole trilogy are set in our world. They're set in England in 1908, 1909. Secondary World is not set in our world at all. So it is a fantasy standalone book set in a world that is not our world. Oh, exciting. Exciting stuff. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the influences that you've had in your writing, becoming a writer? I'm always interested in who made you a writer. I've never sat down and be like, that is the moment at which I decided to become a writer. I think I go, I read so voraciously as a child. I've just read my entire life. I wrote, I thought in my sort of early teens that I wanted to be, wanted to write a book. I don't think I ever really thought I wanted to have the career of an author. I just wanted to have written a book. Yeah. Um, and then I discovered fan fiction in my mid-teens and just wrote that for 15 years. And then decided to start writing original fiction again. So I find it hard to look at any one book and say, this is the book that made me want to become a writer. But I can look at 
authors who I have discovered along the way where I can turn around and say, these are the people who, if I can make other people feel the way that these books make me feel, I would be happy. So I think some of the authors who made me feel that way were Diana Wynne-Jones, who I actually discovered not in my childhood at all, because it's quite hard to find Diana Wynne-Jones books in Australia. Mm -hmm. But I discovered her when I was at medical school. And for some reason that I was, I did my fourth year of medical school in a country town and the library there had heaps of her books. And so I would just you know, go and get one and just spend an entire session day on Sunday reading a Diana Wynne Jones book from cover to cover every weekend and worked my way through her. Remember Terry Pratchett, I was reading from a, a bright and early age and I think the Discworld books are just amazing on every level and, and very inspirational. I discovered Georgette Heyer when I was first getting into romance and just the bubbly champagne feeling of her books is something that I always want to capture when I'm writing romance. Since then, I think, I think who else I consider influential? Connie Willis's book, To Say Nothing of the Dog, was quite influential on this tri- my trilogy in particular in terms of it being like a romp, like a real proper historical romp. I love Lois McMaster Bujol space opera series, The Volcosi Inside, and all of her fantasy as well. And I think Megan Whalen Turner's books, even though they're technically, I think, sold as middle grade to YA, by the time you hit books two and three, the characters are all grown up. And I just think they are absolutely phenomenal works of, of political fantasy fiction told in a very approachable way. Yeah. So, yeah, there's always, there's always direct influences on every individual book, but for me as a writer, I can just turn back and say, look, these are the writers that I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. Did you, with research and that for the series and, and just your approach to research generally, are you one of these people who, I always remember Hilary Mantel in an interview saying she generally spends a year reading and then writes and then doesn't really, doesn't really refer so much. She's almost like she's got her notes in her head. She's made notes, she's made loads of notes, but mm. she said that she has her notes and she's ready to write the story and then it doesn't get in the way. No, that's not me. I'm similar to, to my magical well-building. I did quite a bit of reading around the era to begin with. Just read a couple of different books and okay, I think I've got the, the broad strokes here and then just started writing and then I would hit something like, what, was, what did the English civil service look like in 1908? What did the underground in London look like in 1908? Now, Paul wasn't going and look that up. And when mm. I had the answer I wanted, I went back to the book and mm. can write. Because I think, for me, the world-building and the historical setting was serving the story and serving yeah. the characters. And so if I hit something I needed to know, I would look it up. And, but it got richer as I got through the books because book two, obviously, being set on an ocean liner, there is so much information out there about the Titanic because of what happened to the Titanic. So mm-hmm. that was very easy to get quite a lot of period detail. And I could download the blueprints. Here is what the Titanic looked like on every deck. Here is a list of the amenities. Here is how much it costs to get into the gymnasium on the Titanic. Heaps and heaps of detail, which was great because I just rolled around in that for a week and then, yep, cool, great. Here's, I've sold all the fun stuff that I want. Now I'm going to build my own boat. I remember one of your menus seem very specific and I'm like I'm sure I love food as a detail I just every time I hit something ridiculous kidney omelets or something like that's someone's having that for breakfast (laughs) so it's always fun I think the fun of research is finding those little details that you can then throw in but I don't over research and I think part of it is because I'm not writing historic like pure historical novels I think probably there's a higher expectation of authenticity 
but because I was writing fantasy, even though I was writing fantasy that was typically overlaid on an existing time period, I was allowing myself a certain level of leeway because this isn't, I wasn't trying to exactly capture that world. I'm doing a version of it with magic. So if I hit a word that I really wanted to use, but maybe it wasn't going to be actually in balance for another 10, 15 years, yeah, I don't really mind. Or I could just massage a little bit about the, the trains or things like if, if I needed it to work to serve the story, I didn't bother too much about being 100% correct. Yeah. And so what I was going to ask, I was going to ask you to talk about, yeah, you don't use a lot of subplots in your books and you're quite disciplined. I've noticed you, even the way you talk about your books is, is you're very organized, I think, in your brain, your mind, and that might be your medical training phrase. But I noticed you, you're very controlled in that, you deal with your picture voices and your subplots are minimal. You don't go off on a tangent and start playing around. It's almost like when you're ready to do that, you give them another book. <laughs> yeah, that character's another book. So with the with this final book in the series, you obviously doing a little bit more than the two voices, are you? Or nope, still two voices. Two voices. Uh, that was a bit of an organizational headache. But again, I'm quite organized. So I basically sat down and went, okay. I've only got these two characters whose perspectives I can show you things through. But because I've brought this whole gang together at this point, all I have to do is have one of them hanging out with some of the other people who are doing something about the plot. And I can just show Morthorn interacting with one of the other characters to do this part of the plot. And then we've got Ross hanging out with these characters to do this part of the plot. And sometimes it's just them, and sometimes it's one of them on their own doing something else. And that did constrain the way I could tell the story, but I think that was for the best. I'd hit a point where I had six point of view characters, a couple of other major supporting characters. Uh, and if I had allowed myself the leeway of being able to use anybody's point of view uh, at any time, I think there would be too many options. So it was quite good to stick with those two. And because the reason I don't have many subplots is because the romance is the subplot like basically i'm doing two a plots and that's it i'm doing the fantasy plot and the romance plot in each book they both have equal weight and equal importance uh but because if you're writing a romance everything that happens has to serve the relationship between those two characters like that yeah. that's one of the rules of writing a romance and because i was writing a romance and a fantasy plot everything that ha- happened had to either serve the romance then uh, or to a certain extent i had a bit of leeway or it could develop the relationship between all of the main characters. I could do a little bit of self-indulgence when it came to Robin and Edwin or Morden Violet or the relationship between Ross and Hawthorne and those other characters. Um, but no, every scene should be doing something on a character level and it should be advancing the fantasy plot. And the only scenes that weren't advancing the plot were the ones that were purely romance. Yeah. But once I thought about it in that way, that's why I didn't really have scope for some plots. I already had two A plots and that's enough for any, any book. I'm interested just technically you constrain your plots with the, the boat in book two is obviously constraining the world, which is quite mm-hmm. handy because there's only certain places they can go and certain things that can happen in certain rooms. Mm-hmm. And in one, it's it's houses, isn't it? It's like the houses that they're in. And even yeah. I love these set scenes that you have in book one. You have this, the garden. Gardens are important in stately homes, but it's a, a garden that's lethal and has magical powers. Mm. I love that. And then in, in book two, it's like the, 
sometimes there are stereotypical scenes that you would imagine in that era, like the seance with the channeling the spirits. It's something that is a set piece in lots of books of the era. But you seem to spin it in this kind of original way. I'm a big believer in set pieces. I think they they exist for a reason. And when I was thinking about book three, I knew we're back to houses again. We're not on a boat anymore. Two. There's a couple of there's two new very important houses in book in a power unbound, and almost all the second half of the book takes place in a, a new sort of country estate with house and grounds, and the house and the grounds both important. But when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about it in terms of set pieces. So there are again like quite a lot of stuff that takes place in magical houses. There's a courtroom drama scene. There is a heist scene. Actually, there are two, there's two or three heist scenes. I was, and again, I'd like reach the outline and it would, the outline would just say heist. And I'd be like, shit. <laughs> uh, but, and then there's the historical romance. It was like such and such visits love interests home and meets the family. I think by arranging the plot in those things, you're always excited to write a scene. You're like, oh, we've hit the courtroom scene. Oh, we've hit this somebody's visiting someone else's workplace scene. And so I knew what the little zing of excitement that I wanted the reader and myself to have for each one. Because you're playing around with reader expectation as well, because they already know the set piece and what it's supposed to deliver. And then sometimes you can subvert that expectation a little bit. So yeah, I was really proud of what happens at the midpoint in A Power Unbound, because it is one type of scene that turns into another type of scene and has some like big revelations in it. And I've had at least two or three people who have read it text me and show me that they have thrown the book across the room. Here is the book. It's lying on the floor over there. Or like, that's reaching about what happens at the midpoint. And for me, that that's always fun. I like to design a book where something happens halfway through that makes the reader go, whoa, hang on. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. I'm so excited to read it. Just on a final note, Freya, thank you so much for all the technical questions that I personally want to ask. I'm sure there are other writers out there who are going to get a lot out of that. But just to, to, to finish up, what have you been reading recently that you might want to recommend to us? Oh, okay. So I thought of a few different ones. Thank you for telling me that you were going to ask me this in advance so I could remember no, what I've been reading. Right. So I'll give, you, I'll give you a fantasy, a sci-fi, and a horror. Okay. So sci-fi wise, um, I read Aliette de Bedard's new book, A Fire Born of Exile, and I'm not actually 100% sure if it's out yet, but this is a space opera sapphic retelling of The Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, wow. Uh, and so it's set in her Shuya universe, which is Vietnamese space opera, and with all these things to do with sentient ships and things like that. And this one follows that really traditional revenge drama of somebody whose family was betrayed and she's the only survivor and she has come back under an assumed identity to take her revenge on the people who wronged her family and herself and all the the allies that she makes and the romance that she starts and how those new connections are standing in the way of the absolute vengeance that she wants to wreak. And so it was. It actually got, was a bit harder to get through than I thought, not because the writing was bad. It was so engaging. The, it really digs into these questions of morality and character and how do you make the right choice when all the choices are either appealing or bad 
Uh, anyway, and what does it mean to be a good person or a bad person? It's it's so good. Like I love Elliot Spadard's writing, uh, but this one just had this really engaging, chewy revenge drama at the heart of it, but also set in space with sentient spaceships and things like that. So that's really, good. so that's a fire born of exile. Okay. Um, I just finished a horror novel called Tell Me I'm Worthless by Alison Rumford, and this is very horror. Like I. I've only become a horror reader in the last year, and I'm just very voracious in that genre at the moment. The way I'm describing it is it's a haunted house story where the haunting is modern British fascism. Oh. Uh, yeah, and so it's about being trans in modern-day Britain with all of the political and social and oppressive stuff that, that involves, but it's also an incredibly creepy haunted house story. Like, absolutely, I flew through it. It's really disturbing, but really wonderful. So if you're at all into horror or queer fiction, that horror about the experience of being queer. Yeah. Really. And lastly, I'm just about halfway through Kelly Link's new collection of short stories, mm-hmm. uh, which is called White Cat, Black Dog. And it's all of the short stories are versions of fairy tales. But because it's Kelly Link, they are very sideways versions of fairy tales that combine this absolutely straightforward narrative style that makes you think, of course, this is how the world works, even when everything that's happening is so wild or strange. There's always, But it's always coming from this sense of fairy tale that just carries you through it. So I'm only halfway through that collection so far, but everyone I've read so far has been amazing. And it resurrected an idea I had for a fairy tale retelling novella which I've now started writing concurrently with the novel that I'm meant to be writing. So, yeah, if you're all into fairy tales or just watching someone who's a master of the short story just ply her craft really well, then White Cat, Black Dog by Kelly Link. Okay, great recommendations. Yeah, and I haven't heard of any of those books, so I'm um, interested to go and research some more about them. What's on the cards for you in the next few months with... You're going overseas, are you, to promote? Yes. So I'm not quite sure when this will come out as an episode, but I will be overseas in the States to promote A Power Unbound when it comes out. So I'll be there for the launch in the first couple of weeks of November. And I think it comes out in Australia mid-November, so I might be back in Australia by the time uh, it launches here. I'm not 100% sure about that yet. And we can yeah. find out about your events on your newsletter or your... Uh, yes, I have a newsletter and I have, my website has an events page, which I tend to update once I have a chunk of stuff to put on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will definitely be updating yeah, my website and probably doing a, a newsletter burst as well once I know all of the events that I'm going to be doing um, for promotion of book three. So that's what's oh, on the right. cards promotion-wise. Again, because I don't know when this is coming out, I don't know if, like, how much I'm allowed to talk about my upcoming books yet because there's been no announcements about mm. any of the books that are coming out past this trilogy. Yeah. So I'll just have to wave my vague jazz hands and say, watch this space because yeah. Yeah, there will be more books from me. I just can't tell you much about them yet. All right. Thanks for joining us. And uh, it's been great to chat and catch up again. And um, I think listeners will get some meaty tips out of Writing, how, how you go about writing a series in your version of that, what that looks like. And yeah, hope to meet you again soon. Yes. So I always love talking about crop. So thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, Freya. Thanks, Joe.
Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening, have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.